Hi, I'm Amy Farley, Senior Editor at Fast Company. We're taking a look at some of our favorite moments from the 2021 Fast Company Innovation Festival. Here's a conversation about how we can fix the childcare crisis with Wendy Chun-Hun, Director of the Women's Bureau at the Department of Labor, and Elliot Haskell, author and philanthropic program officer at the Robbins Foundation. I'm Kate Davis, deputy editor at FastCompany.com, and joining me to discuss the state of childcare in the U.S. and both public and private sector solutions for the future are Wendy Chun-Hoon, director of the Women's Bureau of the Department of Labor, and Elliot Haspel, an early childhood and K-12 education policy expert and author of the book, Crawling Behind America's Childcare Crisis and How to Fix It. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Thanks for having us. So one of the most urgent topics for our audience right now is the so-called great resignation, where we're seeing labor shortages across industries. And many people point to a lack of living wages as a key reason, but a lack of childcare is also often a critical factor in why people can't return to work full time. Can either one of you start by explaining kind of what's changed, what's different between 2019 and 2021? I mean, I think... You know, we didn't need the pandemic to show us that the childcare industry was in crisis before the pandemic. And um, what the pandemic has done is really spotlighted the need for significant public investment in a more comprehensive and cogent system. So I actually remember it was September when the when the term she session sort of came onto the, the front page of every newspaper. And, you know, data was being cited of, you know, 875,000 women, you know, had left the workforce that month. And I remember feeling as a mom myself, you know, you just sort of throw your hands up in the air. You can't take it anymore because, you know, school was not reopening. Childcare was not reopening. Um, So I think we knew that things were not working before the pandemic and have seen, you know, the have, have borne the brunt personally, borne the brunt as an economy, as a society. Um, because we didn't have adequate systems before. I mean, you know, it's still 2.8 million women who are not back in the labor force. You know, moms really took the hit on that, and and specifically moms of color, some, you know, over a million fewer moms with kids who are under 13 um, employed now as opposed to pre-pandemic. That's a really good summation. Yeah, we really talk about this idea of childcare as infrastructure, and it it truly is. It is the the sort of industry that uh, undergirds every other industry. Um, You know, just last week, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta had released a report, and they found that. uh, and I'm quoting from a Reuters article here, women uh, with children under age six made up 10% of the workforce before the pandemic, but accounted for 22% of the jobs lost during the crisis. And that the ability to find quality child care is, quote, likely to be a determining factor for employment, end quote, for women with young children. Uh, so the fact is, like, we know that the lack of child care is holding the economy back. And a lot of that's happening because the childcare industry itself is in crisis. So childcare employment itself uh, is down 11% over pre-pandemic, whereas the overall labor force is only down 4%. Uh, You know, four in five centers are are dealing with uh, understaffing right now and that's limiting their ability to take children in, even if they have space for them. So we really have this picture where the childcare industry is in crisis because of underfunding and neglect. And in turn, uh, that's affecting the broader economy. Yeah, you've you've touched on exactly what I wanted to talk about next and that and I'm glad you mentioned the infrastructure too because we're really going to get into the the childcare as infrastructure. 
um, conversation. But I think that that one piece that you just mentioned is so important because it's when I say what's different between 2019 and 2021, it has always been bad, as you said, Wendy. But, you know, as you as you pointed out, Elliot, a lot of child care centers shut down and they didn't reopen. And a lot of after school programs have been cut back or, you know, some schools are still hybrid. Like when child care isn't there, people and primarily women can't get back to work. And so when we talk about the child care crisis, you know, as, as you've kind of alluded to, we're really talking about three different, as I see it, three different, but kind of interrelated crises, like the lack of quality, affordable child care, the low wages for early child care providers, and then subsequently the economic devastation of more than 2 million women leaving the workforce in the past year alone. So can can you, and maybe Wendy, you can start, unpack kind of each of those, how each of those impacts each other and the repercussions that they have? Yeah, absolutely. I want to say up front, we're talking about gender equity in the workplace and mm-hmm. the fact that women predominantly pick up the the more, of vastly more of the child care responsibilities and caregiving responsibilities and household responsibilities um, than their male counterparts. But this is also a racial equity, uh, a major ra- racial equity challenge. So the fact that, you know, moms, yes, bear the brunt, while moms of color bear the bigger cost. Um, women in the workforce, you know, it is still women of color whose labor, whose employment uh, has not ticked up at all. So I would say that in addition to those three reinforcing factors that you talked about, we have to always keep in mind the racial equity, frankly, inequity in this, in this whole system as well. I hope that we are on the cusp <laughs> of a big solution in this regard, because we know that childcare workers, some of the lowest paid uh, wages in the, in the economy, we know that um, the fact that women are concentrated in a lot of the service sector is a reason why the pandemic has been such an economic blow for women and specifically women of color. But those two things actually reinforce each other. The fact that women are in care jobs, predominantly um, the care workforce, and the fact that those wages are in fact paid really low among the lowest wages um, is one of the things that rings loud and clear when, for example, the Women's Bureau is, is looking at pay inequity. Um, the fact that, you know, occupational segregation, women in certain jobs, the fact that those jobs pay, frankly, much less means that women and women of color really, really were at the center of this crisis. That's absolutely right. And I would add, you know, I think this is one of those cases where when you think about the childcare crisis, it's not hard to sort of pull out the chicken from the egg. So the fact is like the underinvestment, the public underinvestment in uh, the care economy for centuries in this country has really where we are reaping that that rotten fruit at this point. So, you know, when you think about you know, public investment in, in the, the K-12 education system. Certainly we need more, but it's, it's right around average of the OECD countries. Uh, our investment in early care and education as a percentage of GDP is third to the last of all developed nations. So, and as a result, you know, we have childcare is an expensive sort of service to provide because you need those low adult to child ratios. You want those low adult to child ratios for high quality. But as a result, you know, when you only have basically asking parents to, to pick up the bill, uh, and there's very little government money coming in and public funding coming in. These centers uh, are doing their best, but they have really no choice but uh, to pay their teachers. You know, the the median wage is like twelve twenty six an hour, which means half of the people folks are making less than that. Uh, you know, and that's 
the, we can't really, can't really ask parents to pay more. And so until we solve that, that sort of compensation issue, you know, which is an issue both for basically respecting the dignity of the work that's being done, because this is hard, skillful work that needs to be done. But also, you know, just from a pure, raw economic competitiveness standpoint, we're watching other low-wage industries raise their compensation, right? Amazon and Target are at a $15 starting wage, McDonald's and, you know, the Walmarts, they're all raising their wages. Ironically, many of them are offering childcare benefits as a way to entice workers in. Um, and as so the childcare, you know, programs, though, really have no ability to follow suit. So they're actually falling further and further behind in terms of their competitiveness as a workplace. And that just exacerbates the lack of slots, which, again, exacerbates the lack of, of you know, women being able and women of color being able to uh, sort of acquire the jobs that they would like to hold because they do end up, you know, taking on an undue burden when it comes to the childcare responsibilities. So, uh, you know, it really, I think we have to start by by stabilizing the childcare industry with public funding before we do just about anything else. When you talk about the childcare industry and and how workers are paid so little, and you're a hundred percent right. You know, I, I've told the story of of here we have uh, the town that I live in has cut their after school programs in part because they can't find workers because they pay ten seventy five an hour and Target pays fifteen dollars an hour and that's kind of always the story that you hear. But then the other story that you hear is how expensive childcare is. You know how incredibly expensive and more than thirty states I think it's more than in uh, in state tuition for college. That's the disconnect that I think a lot of people don't understand. Like, how does it cost so much for the parents, but it pays so little for the workers? Yes, that's absolutely a question I get all the time. The, the part I think that, that's missing in that link is to act the true cost of care. If you want to actually pay your teachers a, a good salary with good benefits um, and provide a high quality service, even if you're paying $10,000 a year as a parent, that true cost of care is probably $20,000, $25,000. So actually that center is taking a loss despite all the money you're paying because of how expensive it is to provide good quality childcare. Um, and so then they have no, you know, get no answer but to, but to cut their wages to the bone. So that's really, I think, the disconnect is that you have, the you know, parents are, there's the line, Marcy White book, uh, a child care you labor researcher has this sort of famous line uh, parents can't afford to pay and workers can't afford to stay um and it's true we have it's, it's going from both directions and the only thing that can, can fill that gap is public money yeah i would just you know add something from the women's bureau's research and and several others so you were just referencing marcy's research you know every 10 percent increase in child care costs is associated with the 7.4, 7.5 decline in women's labor force participation. So, you know, again, we knew this prior to the pandemic. We saw it full throttle during the pandemic, and we've got to create a comprehensive solution so that we get out of that situation. You were talking about, even in your own town, um, Kate, yeah. uh, what the scenario is. And I think I will say what the Women's Bureau is poised to release some uh, really important data, I think a data set that shows costs down to the county level um, and what impact that is having for women's labor force participation when costs are way higher than what wages are at times, both for women who are in paid work generally and also women who are largely providing the childcare in those cities and towns. As we said, it's not only the cost of care, but the availability of care and how many child care centers have shut down since the pandemic. And and also, you know, I mean, we're we're dancing around this a lot, or we're talking about this a lot, but it's the opportunity gap. It's the resources and money, you know, women like myself who can work from home and have a flexible schedule. We're hurt when we have a lack of childcare options, but we can 
survive. If, you know, if you work shift work, if you work lower wage work, if you work work without flexibility, or you don't have the resources to pay for the only daycare opening in town that happens to be the most expensive, then, you know, you can't do it. And that, you know, you touched on that, Elliot, that a lot of private employers are seeing finally that childcare benefits are are the benefits that people kind of need the most in order to get back to work. And and we, we've talked about, too, how much it's set back women's economic gains Overall, I think uh, one statistic I read was as much as a trillion dollars globally in the in the coming years from just the pandemic itself. So it's, it certainly has ripple effects, not just on the personal level, but on the, you know, for the entire economy. I mean, we are down to women's labor force participation rates of thir- three decades ago, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> just want to really, really reinforce, we have seen major setbacks to gains that were steadily increasing for women in the labor force. Yeah, in a generation in a year. That's how how dramatic it's been. And this past year too, it's, you know, we're talking about it and, you know, the three of us are parents and we all feel it. And I think anybody watching this who's a parent like gets it. But the past year has really made the childcare crisis in America much worse, but it's also kind of finally, I feel, in my feeling at least, has finally pushed it to the forefront of the national conversation in a way that it wasn't really before. I think for a long time, it was just like, this is your personal thing you got to figure out. And now that everybody was struggling with it when, you know, especially when schools were closed, it's hard to imagine, for example, like childcare being such a prominent part of the conversation around essential infrastructure. You know, like I think saying childcare is infrastructure in 2019 would have maybe got you some weird looks, but now we kind of all get it, right? But let's break down what's included for childcare in the $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill and what's left out. Like it's, you know, I don't think it's a magic bullet. I don't think it's going to solve everything, but what's the start there? I would say you're right about associating childcare with infrastructure and necessary infrastructure the country relies on, has always relied on for labor force participation. So the one line that kept making its way around is childcare is the bridge to work. Um, So as important as the built infrastructure and our investments there are the investments that I hope we are about to make Um, that certainly the administration has proposed around the care infrastructure. So beyond specifically the childcare investments are things like, really importantly, universal pre-K, right? Paid family medical leave, more federal support for home and community-based services for elder care and disability care, extending the expanded tax credits like the EITC and the child tax credit. So it is, yeah, you're right. Part childcare is a big part of the investment uh, in in the proposed reconciliation package, but also um, part of a whole. And it's really important that we're talking about that whole uh, that families need in terms of caregiving supports and a care infrastructure in order to thrive in their home lives, uh, for their well-being, but also in their work lives. That's absolutely right. I'm glad you said that. I think families and children do not exist in vacuums. Um, and, you know, dealing with an issue around, you know, an elder care issue or an issue with a family member with significant medical needs can just as easily put a strain on a family. And we know that has an impact on child development. So you know, sometimes we, we zoom in a little too close on the kids that actually it's the ecosystem of the family around them. Uh, so specifically, you know, the, the reconciliation package that was came out of the, the House um, Education and Labor Committee had, I want to say, it's, I believe it's $450 billion for, for child care and pre-K. Uh, and specifically, you know, what the president is proposing and what's breaking its way through 
would uh, have, you know, universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds, which would be sort of a joint share between you know, the federal government and the states, uh, and then a very large infusion of funding going through childcare subsidy to the states. And so this is built on the framework largely of what was called the Child Care for Working Families Act. And basically what this does is, is until you reach a really pretty significant level of affluence, it caps your, your cost at 7% of your income. And, and if you're sort of mid-moderate income or lower income, you're paying significantly less than that. Um, and importantly, it also actually works its way up to the point of basically creating a new a new entitlement so that, the, you know, this is not something where you're going to end up with wait lists, you know, down the line where actually you, if you were, you know, a qualifying parent, which is basically every parent except for the truly rich, you're getting a significant benefit, um, you know, through through this funding. And so it would be, and it is, I think, inarguably the most significant piece of childcare legislation in the past 50 years. And it is kind of, I think, appropriate that we're about 50 years, nearly to the month since President Nixon vetoed the Comprehensive Child Development Act. And so now we have another at-bat at this. So it would be truly uh, transformative to, to families, it would be transformative for child care providers. It, has a, it, uh, it would require states to establish a, a sort of a minimum of a living wage for, for child care practitioners and eventually uh, walk up those compensation to reach parity with um, el- early elementary school teachers for those who share similar credentials and experience. So a lot of really, really good stuff in there. Obviously, the, what happens to it remains to be seen. But, you know, as sort of a proposal, and now that we have some legislative language around it, it's really promising. And I'm glad you both mentioned, you know, care infrastructure as a whole and that that a lot of these policies and even, you know, when we talk about like paid leave policies, um, we get pushback a lot or, you know, I hear some pushback from employees that aren't parents that it's like, well, why do I need to pay into this system? Or I, you know, why am I supporting your choice to have a child? And, you know, I'm supporting it. And I always say these rules, these laws, these protections, you know, paid leave, all of it affects anybody who has a family, anybody who has somebody that they may need to care for, somebody that may get sick, somebody that, you know, is is old and needs care. Like these impact everybody. And I, I think that, you know, there's that argument. And then there's right also the argument that this is the future workforce. And these are the people who will be taking care of us one day. And, and you know, there's a lot of reasons to invest in, in care infrastructure other than if you're a parent yourself. Um, I'm wondering, you know, as you were talking, Elliot, where this would put us in the context of the the rest of the world. You know, I, we we cover so much like how the United States and what, Papua New Guinea are the only you know countries without uni- universal paid leave. Where would the proposed care structure put us? Yeah, so I, I'm sure Wendy can say more about the, sort of the paid leave provisions in particular is not where my my expertise lies. But you know, when it comes to childcare, you know, it would put it so. They're basically, you know, the European nations, with the exception of Great Britain, tend to have a pretty heavily subsidized system. Most of those have some kind of a hard cap or a percentage cap of income that folks are paying. They do have much more money going in publicly funded. So it would put us a lot closer to our peers. Um, you know, actually right now, uh, just up north in Canada, they're rolling out a nationally supported childcare system that, that's sort of based on this $10 a day system. That That's the average cost for, for parents. Uh, ours would still be a little bit more on kind of the, the I don't know what you want to call it, kind of demand side, because it's a little more subsidy-based. Some of the other European nations um, and developed nations are a little bit more supply side, where it's, it's more publicly, it's like a public center that you, you go to. 
And I think what would be really important, I think maybe almost the most important thing is really getting us closer to this idea of there being a right to childcare, right? Every child in all 50 states, and all 50 state constitutions have a right to public education. It's in there. Um, and they have legal remedy if that, that is not, you know, if that is denied to them. In, in zero state constitutions, and certainly not on the federal level, does any child or parent have a, a right to early care and education? And so this would really move us more in that direction. That would certainly put us more in line with uh, with the international community, because that's one thing that research is really clear about is that when you have programs that are sort of really baked in through through the legal system, when they're they're sort of seen as a right, um, they're much more robust. They're much better funded. They tend to be much higher quality, uh, and that's sort of something we haven't talked about as much so far. Like, you know, we don't just want these kids in any kind of a childcare setting, we want them in a quality childcare setting. And that could be in a family childcare home, that could be through a faith community, that could be in a childcare center, in a pre-K, where the setting doesn't matter as much, but we know it needs to be high quality and that, you know, it means being adequately funded, well-compensated practitioners, things like that, which again, moving us more towards that uh, right-based system would certainly uh, move us more in line with the rest of our, our global peers. Since Elliot left the opening on paid family medical leave, I mean, we we are not just not among our peers, we're dead last, America's dead last um, in the world. And we are paying the cost of that every day. So I hope that we're in a position now where we are not pitting childcare as more important than paid family medical leave, as more important than elder care, disability care. The truth is we need all of it. You know, this is the moment that we're in to make that investment because we are definitely the paying the cost of inaction so far. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. We cannot pit these things against each other. This is all part of how you make family-friendly public policy. They, they cannot be seen as mutually exclusive. From a business owner standpoint or a leader standpoint, it's also how you keep and retain and attract you know, the workforce that everybody is complaining they can't find now. I mean, we're in such a, a a state right now with the with the great resignation, you know, of people having labor shortages, looking for the talented employees, trying to attract them with everything they can think of when really what, you know, employees want and need is a work-life balance, a, you know, their families taken care of, um, you know, those sorts of things. I know that we've touched a little or we've touched a lot on the the public policy standpoint and you know we certainly hope that everything that that we talked about will come to pass but you know chances are it might not all Wendy I'd like to start with you with what other kind of public policy solutions you've seen or you've worked towards or that there are other than than what's in the proposed bill and then Elliot I'd like you to talk a little bit about the the private sector solutions that we've seen yeah, there was something uh, you said, Elliot, it was about um, maybe access to rights, even when you have them. And uh, it made me think about more broadly, even outside of what's specifically in this package, just thinking back to the critical investment, you know, at sort of the pinnacle of COVID crisis with the American Rescue Plan, and really how important it was in that moment to make sure that Families could avail themselves, workers could avail themselves of all the benefits, financial and otherwise, that that package provided and how important that is to think about going forward in this next step. 
So, uh, you know, I, I, at the Women's Bureau, you know, we have actually just launched uh, a new grants program that is about fostering access, rights, and equity to make sure that workers and specifically the women who have been most impacted by this pandemic are able to draw down important investments like that child tax credit, you know, are able to connect to every possible financial and other employment support in this moment. So I think a huge part that is part public policy, but also part just awareness and outreach is making sure that folks know about what investments the administration, the Congress have made in this moment. I think that, you know, broadly beyond things that are even included in this package, we have to keep a bright light on, um, for example, uh, equal pay, pay transparency, because you talk about childcare crisis being really interconnected. There are a whole host of reasons why, and I tried to mention them at the beginning of the conversation, why you have such disparate uh, or inequity in women's pay. And the whole conversation about equal pay really being about a number of things. One, what occupation are you in? Two, how well does that occupation pay? That's most germane to the conversation we're having today. But also, um, you know, the fact that we still don't have full guarantee on things like pay transparency or not using a person's salary history to determine their their salary in the current job or a future job, um, because we know that brings with it a legacy of of past discrimination too. So, you know, part of that is public policy solution. Part of that is private employer solution and really being a field leader. You know, I I took a look at the Fast Company article that came out, I think it was late last week, really talking about um, some of these things as reasons why, you know, folks either stay in their jobs or begin actively looking for new jobs is the extent to which they have things like work flexibility, paid leave employ, um, benefits on the job, things that help you know, really uh, mitigate that tension between work and family. So I think all of these are, are incredibly relevant in this moment, whether in the package or not. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up pay inequity and, and the pay gap because there's so many, as you mentioned, there's so many factors to it, right? There's the fact that the work that women do is usually paid less, the fact that care work is paid less. But then the motherhood penalty for a lot of workers where, you know, we've talked a little bit about how women are the ones that it generally falls on to pick up the childcare duties. They're the ones that generally have to leave early for pickup, that have to fill in the gaps when there's no after-school program. They have to do those things, therefore are seen as less serious about their jobs, therefore get paid less. And then as you, you mentioned, it's a perpetuating cycle, right? Then you apply for your next job. They say, what did you get paid at your last job? You tell them they pay you less they pay you less, they pay you less. And when we talk about women's economic losses and setting back three decades, as you as you point out, then it's not just about, oh, well, women dropped out of the workforce or they had to, or they were pushed out. It's also those kind of perpetuating losses as well. Elliot, so we, you know, when we talk about private sector solutions, I know one of the things that comes up all the time that it's treated like it's the magic bullet and it's not <laughs> is the on-site daycare. Like, oh, let's just make a daycare at the office and then like problem solved. First of all, why is that not as easy as it sounds? And second of all, what are some actual solutions that private sector companies can do? Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. Oh, by the way, I say one thing on the public policy too, just if I real quick is, you know, we've been talking a lot about like federal policy here. The states have a huge amount of they can do as well. Uh, you know, most state budgets, if you look at what they spend on children, 90 plus percent of it's about K-12 education, again, because it's constitutional, right? Um, so there's a lot more, you, whatever happens at the federal level, states is another place we can push on. 
Um, but yeah, so I, I will say, uh, you know, my personal opinion, I think making childcare a job-linked benefit is a terrible idea. Um, in any more that we should have healthcare be a job-linked benefit, but there may be few worse ideas, but making childcare a job-linked benefit is one of them. Because think about it, if you're, you lose your job and your child is at that childcare center and now has to leave, that is two problems. One, you have to find childcare again. And two, children, especially young children, they thrive on consistency and reliability. So there's a child development issue here. You do not want to be constantly turning over the caregivers and the caregiving sites that your young children are going to. Uh, so the idea that, that we're going to do this, the practically also, if you think about, you know, most of these on-site childcare are happening at you know, corporate HQ. They're not happening at the target down the street. And so the idea that we could scale that to the level of being able to provide enough childcare to a significant swath of employees, it's just not realistic. I think some of the ones that exist are fine, but it's not a solution. It's a piece of, it's one small piece of a much larger puzzle. Um, And as as you say, a solution for the, you know, 150 employees that work at that particular office, right? Like not a, not a scalable solution. And and also I think as you touched on too, quality childcare is, is not an easy thing to just throw in a conference room and have a baby there, you know? Yeah. And I will tell you many businesses that try this also really very quickly run up into the fact that it's much harder to start an onsite childcare than they think it is mm-hmm. um, in terms of regulations and insurance and all the rest of it. So it's also, it's challenging. Um, but what can the private sector do? A lot. Uh, you know, I think one of the most significant things they can do is be advocates for the public funding. I, I will, again, my personal Elliot opinion, I, I was disappointed to see the U.S. Chamber of Commerce come out in opposition to the reconciliation package, which is full of things that would help workers. There were, you know, and businesses ultimately and so business has fairly, you know, over the past decade or two in particular, has been fairly vocal about the fact that child care, you know, matters. It is important to their bottom line. It's important to their workforce of, you know, the, the workforce of today, the workforce of tomorrow is one report, you know, put it. Uh, but they also need to put their kind of, you know, money where their mouth is when it comes to things like supporting, uh, you know, legislation that would increase funding, even if that includes, you know, modest tax increases on, on the business community. Like that's, that's a really important voice. We know policymakers and lawmakers listen to the business community. So I think the private sector is a huge role to play there. And the other piece I'll just say to add on to what Wendy was talking about, the workplace flexibility, which I totally agree with. There's something around corporate culture too, right? Like this idea that, okay, so you're, you're technically, we have this flexibility in place, but if you take it, uh, you know, on a very sort of micro sort of, are you training the managers? How are you trained to, to, you know, deal with the fact that, you know, the coworker feels kind of slighted that they all of a sudden have to take on a little bit more because their coworker had to leave because of a childcare issue. Like those are very real sort of day-to-day experiences that parents, and again, particularly mothers, you know, inter- have to deal with. And I think it's a lot more, uh, you know, corporate America could do. You know, you, if you think about, the, I use this example sometimes in Sweden, they have a national paid leave policy for dependent care paid leave policy for when you have sick kids. And it's, it's uh, the verb, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but it's like VABA. Uh, but they basically turn it into slang. Like, you know, oh, Elliot's vobbing today. Like, I mean, then everyone knows. Like, he's off, you know, his kid's sick. He's home with his kid. Um, and so when you think about that, it's just such a, a proxy for a much more family-friendly culture within a workplace culture. And, and I think that's the sort of thing the private sector it has nothing to do with policy. It has nothing to do with laws. It's nothing to do with funding. But like those, how you, in the day-to-day interactions, I think really do matter to, to the parent experience. You know, when I think about private sector solutions, there's a lot on the company culture side of it that, you know, especially in office culture where it is, you know, you do kind of control your own schedule a little bit more. It is more setting the tone as a manager, right? And like 
of it's okay to leave, it's okay to be off, it's okay to come in late, it's okay to leave early, those sorts of things. What about in not so flexible jobs? You know, I think, you know, when we talked about how hard it is to access care, you know, most care, especially, you know, well, the school day runs until three or most childcare centers run nine to five. What can companies do? Say you are a, a Target or a Walmart and you have a lot of hourly workers. What can those companies do to help those workers? I mean, w- one thing I think we haven't talked about in this conversation, but is an active conversation across the country are, you know, more fair scheduling. So the the fact that when your kid is sick and you get the call, yes, you should have time to go take care of your family. Um, but also, you know, there are more, many more routine stressors during the day that having a predictable work schedule would really help. So, you know, the whole conversation about really seeing how detrimental just-in-time scheduling is and a whole host of solutions that could come through that I think states, back to your point, Elliot, about how important states are and localities are in really um, helping to fine-tune some of the bigger policy solutions that we need nationally. States and locales are experimenting with this. And I think that's you know really important to lift up in this conversation because um, we all have routine stressors in our work days because of our family responsibilities. And that's not unique to having kids or young kids. It's really, I think if COVID has shown us anything, it's really that how universal um, family caregiving responsibilities are. So Again, just as we don't want to pit one policy solution as more important than the other in terms of care infrastructure and pieces of that, um, knowing that there it will take the whole. Um, we also want to remember that it isn't just the parents of young kids in the workforce, but you know, one in I think it's one in six women are caregiving for elderly family members um, right now while they're in the paid workforce. Um, and that's much more universally, I think, understood as a result of COVID. And as we're in, you know, what we're all calling the sandwich generation and many of us experience. So I think that's really a universal experience that that requires some of these more universal responses. Yeah, I guess the only thing I would add to that is in one other place, we know that over the past decades, especially like companies are not, they're staffing too leanly. And I know it's kind of odd to say like in a time where you have labor shortages, but like in a macro level, you know, part of the issue is it's hard for it to say like, you need to go to care your sick kid because there's no one to replace you. Because, mm-hmm. you know, instead of this constant pursuit of, you know, the little margins and the shareholders and the quarterly reports, right? Like where we're seeing these companies squeeze out and extract everything they can from workers. And, you know, I think when you see Amazon workers who were like forced to go to work during like Hurricane Ida's, you know, downpours in New York City, right? Like the, the, the labor practices, you know, sort of stem back to this, this sort of the way that we, and I know I'm sort of saying capitalism, which is like a big thing, but it, it truly is like the way that articulates in how a company chooses to staff, how a company chooses to put policies in place around, you know, how, when workers are, or have to work or either that, those really do run into all of these issues. And then, yeah, if, if you're staffed totally leanly so that you have like no give and then something happens because something will happen inevitably, then yeah, the, the, who ends up paying the price is is the worker and the family. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned it too, Wendy. It's, I don't want to, to miss this point because I feel like it's such a simple one that makes such a big difference is the predictive scheduling. You know, there's so many people with cushy office jobs, forget this, but there's so many people that their schedule changes week to week, what hours they work. 
And it baffles me how they find childcare. And I think the answer is usually they don't, you know, and I, I think that that's, you know, childcare or elder care or just how they run their lives. Like, how can you, I think, you know, everyone would do well to put themselves in in that role for a day and see how it's a, such a scramble to be able to do your job. I mean, when you think about labor shortages, there's some, there's some things that for me just feel really obvious for a quality of life. I mean, obviously a living wage, but also, yeah, knowing when you're going to work and being able to plan your life. So Elliot, especially Fast Company, kind of, you know, our, our lens is companies, and we talk primarily about the benefits of all of these programs for employees, but I'd love you to talk just a little bit more about the benefits of investing in early childhood education for the economy as a whole and for the future workforce, because I think we don't really think about it that way. We think about, like, again, like, it's your kids or whatever, but these, this is really the economy and this is the future workforce. And I think you touched on it a little bit. We invest, you know, a certain amount in K through 12, but it's just always baffles me that we're just like, you're on your own from birth to five. Yeah. And I'll say that with the caveat that I always feel a little bit awkward talking about like toddlers as like future, like economic units <laughs> of economic productivity, but like uh, with that sort of caveat, yes. Like what we know is that Early childhood development, you know, 80, 90% of the brain develops in the first three to five years of life. Babies are making, you know, upwards of a million neural connections every minute. I mean, the amount of brain development is just explosive. And so to then think that, and this is a very antiquated view, which we now know, you know, by the, the neuroscience is no longer accurate to think that, okay, you know, now they're four or five years old. Now they can start learning stuff. Like that's absolutely not, that's not the way kids work. Um, we've been learning all along. And what we do know is that, you know, sort of uh, this concept of school readiness, which, which sort of is a combination of most importantly, it's sort of this idea of what is your sort of executive function, your ability to to sort of regulate your own emotions, concentrate, to share and take turns, these sort of basic kind of meat and potatoes work of what's going to happen in, in school. Um, you know, those are brain processes that are discrete. And then certainly there's some correlation of kind of the pre-academic skills. Do you know your letter sounds? Do you know, you know, how to count up to 20? Like there is correlation between that and then being able to, to master reading by third grade. And we have a, you know, our public education system in this country is very stepwise, which means that it's a ladder. And if you are not ready to go, you know, what's happening, like they're not waiting for you. Um, and then you fall further and further behind. This is why we know that being able to read on grade level by the end of third grade is one of the, the most predictive factors of whether you're going to graduate high school. Cause you know, at some point, like the receptor start reading word problems to be able to do math and to do science and do everything else. And then if you can't do that, you'll further and further behind. So all of the, the work we do in early childhood and making sure that children have access to healthy child development does pay dividends in terms of greater high school graduation, greater college attendance and, and matriculation and completion uh, in terms of greater skill you know, acquisition. And the last thing I'll say on that is it's not just the child care and then the pre-K. This goes back to something Wendy was talking about. We actually know it's a single, overwhelmingly sort of large influence on child development is family stability. So if you want a child to develop optimally, then what you really want to do is make sure that that family is stable, that family has enough income that they're able to provide, that their housing stable so that they're not moving all the time, that they're, you know, all the risk factors that go along with being either, you know, living in poverty, living in sort of this level of precarious all of that is, is really, it's, it's toxic for, for brain development. And so in a lot of cases, unfortunately, we have a country that has set up systems very intentionally that, that keep many families and particularly families of color unstable and precarious. And, and that 
has a huge impact on child development and what we see later in school and, and then in life. Yeah, we talk a lot, you know, about the pipeline and about building diverse workforces. And it's, it's what all, you know, CEOs are concerned about right now. And it's really, it starts at the beginning. You know, we can't be at the college graduate level going, oh, well, now what do we do? It's It really starts at the beginning. We only have a few minutes left. And so I'd like to solve this entire problem. Um, so, so, I mean, this is it's obviously such a broad topic and it's so complex. And there's no, I know there's no one magic bullet solution, but, you know, as we wrap up, I'd, I'd love for each of you to give maybe your top one to three priorities that you would love to see on either a public policy or an individual private company level. Like what, what are the, the most crucial things? Um, Wendy, do you want to start? Sure. I, I have two things that just keep replaying in my head throughout this conversation. You know, the first is we just need to shift the conversation about talking about care work is women's work mm. to what it actually is, which is work. <laughs> when we value care work properly, we're going to see better wages for care workers. We're going to see you know, fewer caregiving penalties for women. We're going to see fl- workplaces, as you just said, Kate, that are flexible, where you know all employees who are caregivers, because that is the reality, <laughs> are actually able to thrive. Um, And the other thing goes back to the point in the conversation where, Elliot, again, you were talking about the important role that states play in this moment. You know, hopefully this is the once in the generation, you know, investment that we have long needed. And as that money potentially moves from the federal level through, you know, its machinations by formula to the states, what it does is it positions states and state leadership to have an incredible influence in this moment to remake systems that, you know, are moving away from scarcity and moving towards quality and equity. Um, You know, whether it's the woman of color who's providing care in her community, whether it's the working mom who is trying to be both employed for pay in the workplace, but also knows that she has a lot of caregiving responsibilities at home, whether it's the, you know, largely women and women of color who are owners of these childcare centers themselves and such critical hubs in their communities um, for the local economy. So I think that is the opportunity we have in front of us is move away from what has been a majorly scarcity model formula into the kind of quality and equity that we know that we can achieve. Yep, I'm aware of that. I'll say my sort of two, I suppose, like, and I've touched on both of these. One is we need to start talking about child care as a right. It cannot be a welfare program anymore. Uh, it needs to be a, a right uh, on par with the right to public education. Uh, and then the second thing is we have to get more public funding. And we cannot business our way out of this. We cannot innovate our way out of this. We cannot entrepreneur our way out of this crisis. Those all have roles to play, but ultimately we are going to be shoving a lot of interest of like energy and time into a bucket that does not even have a bottom. It's not like a hole in it. It just isn't a bottom. If we don't put the public money in to be able to compensate this workforce well the way that they deserve, to be able to make care affordable and accessible for all parents to be able to choose the care situation that works for their, you know, their situation. That's the other thing we haven't talked about as much. I'll say is, you know, this is very much in my mind about an issue of freedom. It's an issue of self-determination. Like we have parents that are choosing to not have children or have less children than they want. 
because they're worried about being able to afford or handle the childcare challenges. And to me, that is tragic. Like that should not be the concern that you have to think about if what you should be the family that you want to have. It's, it's very sort of un-American, I would actually argue, to be able to have the situation that we currently have. Uh, so, you know, I think being able to really push the idea, this is a common good and it needs to have a public and common solution, which is going to start with a whole lot more public money that we're putting in right now. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Wendy and Elliot, thank you so much for joining me. This I could talk about this topic all day long. Um, this, this was really great. Thank you so much. Yeah, really great conversation. Thank you. Thank you.